Sugar in the back. Oh, oh and, hold uh, on. Have, let's see. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Gregory Mank, and he published a book back in 2007. Title of the book is Hollywood's Hellfire Club, The Misadventures of John Barrymore, W.C. Fields, Errol Flynn, and the Bundy Drive Boys. And Mr. Mank, his last name is spelled M-A-N-K, is the author of 15 books. I'm just going to read off a few of the titles. One is Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff, the expanded story of a haunting collaboration with a complete filmography of their films together. That was published 2017. Also, Hollywood's Maddest Doctors, Lionel Atwill, Colin Clive, and George Zuko, 2018. Also, It's Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein. And another title is Women in Horror Films, 1930s. And he does have a book coming up early 2022, not that far away, titled... Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us, More Dark Alleys of Classic Horror Cinema. More Dark Alleys of Classic Horror Cinema. So that's coming up in February 2022. Again, his website where you can see all his work is at www.gregorymank.com. So you can see all that stuff there. But this book really is a uh, fascinating. I kind of had some like grim laughter reading through it. But they have the, in the intro is something that... Uh, you know, I'm familiar with it. I'm just going to read it here. He says, the original Hellfire Club was an aristocratic British group that met throughout the middle of the 18th century to drink, whore, and raise hell. The club motto, taken from Rabelais and later appropriated by Alistair Crowley, was do it thou wolf. So that's what leads up to the modern Hellfire Club. But Gregory Mank can talk more about that. So, Gregory, are you there? I am here. Thank you very much. I sound very obsessive, uh, I think, from that introduction. But <laughs> that's that's all right. That's the business. Well, I mean, it's uh, really an interesting book. You got a lot of people, the names that I'm familiar with, but not so much of their escapades. Can you kind of talk about your background and what led you to write Hollywood's Hellfire Club? Yeah, you know, it's 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 very interesting that um, some of these people in this book have fascinated me for years and years. And um, for example, John Barrymore. Uh, I remember seeing a picture of John Barrymore as Svengali. Back, gee, back when I was in high school, all right, I mean, a, a film history book, and I had a picture of him as Svengali. And I always remember there were, there were two people I saw, one a picture of a person, and one actual person in, uh, in, live in the flesh, uh, who I looked at and thought, wow, something is really very, very wild about that person. One one's Sean Lennon. Sing the Beatles in concert back when I was in high school, and 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 before them on stage, they were all just fantastic. But something about Lennon, you know, standing there, it was just you could just tell there was all kinds of wild goings on in in that in that man's psyche. Uh, and the other one was actually just a photograph uh, of Barrymore uh, as Svengali, even though he wasn't doing anything; he just frozen there in the picture. I thought, you know, this man has got some he's got some issues. You know, this he's he's. <laughs> He's 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 a, he's a genius, some kind of some kind of warp genius going on here. So so he was actually the first one I became interested in, and then as years went by, I heard about the others. Uh, of course, some of them were very famous. You know, Errol Flynn being a member of the Bundy Drive Boys and and W. C. Fields and and uh, John Carradine, uh, all all these all these guys, terrific terrific talents. And I, I should mention that when work first started on this book back in 2006, I believe that it was, uh, and I went out to Los Angeles to start researching it. Uh, the Actually, the headquarters 
for the Hellfire Club, if you will, which was 419 Bundy Drive. That, that place was still there. All right. Yeah, the house was still there. They had not yet gotten around to tearing it down. Um, they, they would right afterwards, <laughs> almost, you know, almost immediately uh, after we finished uh, researching the book, the house went down. And um, but the house was exactly as it had been back in 1940. And it even had the same door. And the door had this hatch, hatchway in it, and with uh, an inscription. Um, and the inscription was useless, insignificant and poetic. Useless, insignificant and poetic. And it was the home of John Decker the artist, and this is where Decker's studio was, and this is where these various people came uh, to hang out with him and to talk and to uh, share their fun and their laughter and also to share their demons. Uh, these men had a lot of torment in their lives, and 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 getting into the book when we first started, I think the idea was uh, that uh, that I and the and, and my co-authors, uh, Charles Hurd, uh, and Bill Nelson would would you know this would be a, a funny book, which it is, of course, uh, you know, and and just sort of like you know, this is like a, a Hollywood, an old version of the Hollywood Rat Pack, and and you know all these all these crazy guys doing crazy things. But as we got into it, it became more and more, uh, it became darker. It became more of you know what, what what drove these men to where they went because they all basically self destructed. Uh, without having a whole lot of fun doing it, all right. I mean, they 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 really went downhill. They really tore themselves to pieces, and and they 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 came to very in in most some of the cases some some very very sad uh, sad endings. So so the trick of the book, the goal, became to find out what what got these guys going, what what was eating away at them that caused both the laughter and both cause and caused both the torment and and caused them to be the the, the the crazy mix that they were. And why did they hang out together? You know, what 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 common bond uh, did they have that made them kind of find uh, comfort and uh, and uh, friendship and and uh, help uh, with with each other, as well as all the hell raising and the uh, the hellfire. Right. And at that time, I don't know if it was exp as expensive now, but that address, the land there has got to be worth the millions of dollars in Brentwood. So back then, it probably was still a nice place to hang out. Can you talk about that kind of area and, and who uh, Decker was and why they all kind of gravitated around him? Yeah, Decker was a, was a very, very interesting man. Uh, he considered himself the world's greatest artist. <laughs> uh, he... Uh, he was uh, again had a, carrying a lot of torment. He had a, a mother who abandoned him. This seemed to be a, a, a common thread that all of these guys had dreadful problems with their mothers, which I guess is not new. You know that that's that's, that's frequently the case with in this kind of thing. But in this case, some really flamboyantly horrible situations with their mothers. Uh, and uh, he also had been in a POW camp on the Isle of Man during World War One and saw horrible things happen. And he never got over them. You know, he was he, he Decker was 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 completely messed up for, for much of his life because of the of his childhood and because of these 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 dreadful things he saw happen in the prisoner of war camp uh, and but he was a, a, a spectacular artist and he could paint as he put it anybody in any background in any style doing anything right and uh, one of the ways that he uh, made 
decent money was the fact that he would you know create uh, art for the studios if they needed a picture of a you know of a great baronial looking man standing in a in a, in a parlor uh, you know he could paint that picture uh, but what he also did is he would be appealing to the star's egos he would go to stars and he would paint them as famous models like you know Harpo Harpo Marx is the blue boy all right uh, he would paint his picture that way uh, there's a <laughs> there's a picture in the book of Catherine Hepburn around 1936 when she appeared in the movie uh, Mary of Scotland and she wanted her, her portrait uh, painted. And so uh, uh, Decker painted her portrait uh, in Mary of Scotland and, and he didn't get along too well with Catherine. You know, I mean, she was always kind of, you know, bossy and overbearing and, and telling everybody what to do and this sort of thing. And she started, you know, setting up her own lighting and, and all this other kind of stuff when they started, to, he started to paint the picture. And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, he, he, the final painting, she kind of looks like a red haired vampire. Uh, she doesn't look like Mary of, <laughs> Mary of Scotland at all. She looks like this vampire. And apparently he, you know, he wouldn't let her see it until he was finished. He finished the painting and then he turned it around and showed it to Hepburn. And she just was absolutely shocked and agog and horrified and everything. And she said, I won't have that thing in my house. She gave it away to a friend. And I think in 2006, somebody found it in an attic in the Hollywood Hills. Whoever she gave it to wouldn't even put it on the wall. And it was so disturbing to look at. So you wanted to stay on his good side, you know, if, if he was painting your picture. Um, but he was, you know, he, he had this, this really spectacular artistic ability uh, uh, to, to be able to do this and um, paint in any way in any style. And of course, the famous story about, about Decker was that, you know, he once got away with, with passing off uh, his, his work as a Rembrandt. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's still to this day, all these years later, there are still arguments going on at the, uh, Fog Museum at Harvard, uh, about whether or not a particular Rembrandt there called the Bust of Christ was actually done by Rembrandt, or actually it was a facsimile, uh, made by John Decker. Who, who not only was able to create the, 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 the picture in the Rembrandt style, but knew what kind of wood to paint it on, uh, knew all these tricks about sending it to Amsterdam to have it go through customs and back and forth and so on and so forth and to weather it and to make it look old and, and all this. And by the time he was finished with it, uh, people actually, many people actually believed it was actually the work of Rembrandt. And many people still do. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an ongoing debate all the time about, about this, this, this bust of Christ, whether Rembrandt uh, did it or Decker did it. Uh, so um, he was, um, <laughs> he was a, a bizarre character. He, he actually even looked like Barrymore. If you, if you made up Barrymore to look like Lucifer, actually, he kind of looked, you know, like John Decker. Um, and um, uh, he, he went through, uh, went through life in Hollywood, uh, you know, working in this very, very bizarre style of creating this artwork. Uh, the men all loved him. He had a great sense of humor. He was very funny. He was very profane. He was all the things that they enjoyed. And of course, again, he had that bond that, uh, that they liked, which was the fact that he had been horribly treated by his mother. Uh, and that uh, in addition to being horribly treated by his mother, that he had gone through early things in his life, as we mentioned with that POW camp, uh, which had sort of crippled him emotionally. And they all kind of had, you know, their as some kind of uh, of torment that that really was uh, really putting them through it. Right. So, so he, he was kind of like the you know the example of what all these guys would be. He was German too, so he was in a he was in a uh, Allies P 
POW camp too, right? Yeah, yeah, he was. That's right. He was. He he was. Uh, you know, all kinds of stories came out during his lifetime. He was actually born in San Francisco, and so on and so forth. And then apparently, he told Gene Fowler, who was a writer who who hung out with him and, and, and wrote about them. Uh, you know what his real life supposedly had been, which was that he was, you know, the uh, the the son of uh, you know these German Prussian. Uh, military people, and in his mother's case, an opera singer, and that uh, he ended up uh, in this um, in this work camp. That's right, and that that you know he had to kind of had to disguise his past to get through that, that so uh, uh, so that he could work in Hollywood. So yeah, very bizarre character. Very bizarre character, but also kind of important because he he people like John Barrymore are with him. Can you talk about uh, John Barrymore? He's kind of like the famous. You know, father of a lot of people, I think, related to Drew Barrymore. Can you talk about him and his kind of uh, tortured life? Sure. John Barrymore was a, a, he was a brilliant actor. Although when you see him in most of his films today, which were made in the 1930s, he's a little bit past his prime. By that by that point, he's uh, he's in his 50s, which is not that old. But I mean, he's not the electrifying young actor that he was that you know when he made it big on on Broadway. Um, uh, once again. Uh, 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 as a young man, um, you know, in his early teens, uh, he was apparently sexually abused by his stepmother. And also he apparently uh, started drinking very early. In fact, when he died, the doctor said that from the age of 14 on, he was pretty much a chronic alcoholic. Um, when he had it together on stage, he was absolutely wildfire brilliant. I mean, he was he was just incredible to watch. People who saw him as Hamlet, people who saw him as Richard III in the early 1920s. I mean, he made he made you know, New York history as a, as a, as this terrific Shakespearean actor. Um, we the, probably the best way to see him today is the fact that he was he made a film of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde in 1920. All right. And the legend is that he was able to do the transformations without makeup. All right. That he was such a such a complete wild man actor that he was able to change from from Jekyll to Hyde without actually putting on makeup. That's not exactly true. He was able to change his expression. All right. Which is a large part of it. You know, this horrible, you know, demonic expression that he gets on his face when he becomes uh, Mr. Hyde. But in the meantime, uh, he also would, would cut away with the camera and he would put like this cone head makeup on with a scraggly wig and he would do things with his fingers and makeup on his fingers and and uh, and other things that would make himself look, uh, you know, even more repulsive and so on. But the, the, the marvelous thing about Barrymore and Mr. Hyde was that he could turn on the expression, uh, you know, with a snap of a finger. And um, a story that was told by his his last wife, this would have been maybe three or four years before Barrymore died, his last wife before he and his last wife uh, broke up, uh, he was going through a, a fairly peaceful time and uh, had his drinking somewhat under control and he would have one beer a night. All right. And she would go and get him his beer each night and he would sit down and drink one beer and that was keeping him under control. And one night he said, you know, would you, Elaine, would you go and get me my beer? And uh, she said, I'll do it for you, John, or, but you, uh, you have to do Mr. Hyde for me. And he, she, she said, you know, I want you to turn into Mr. Hyde for me. I want you to do the transformation the way you did it in the movie. And uh, he was kind of flattered. He thought, oh, well, you know, since, you know, I'm, I'll take requests. Sure. You know, I'll, 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 I'll do Mr. Hyde for you. So she said she, she brought him an empty glass and he stepped over by the fireplace and posed there. And all turned, you know, you know, drank the potion. Then, of course, he, you know, he, he gyrates and twists and turns and tore his hair and made all this kind of stuff and hunched over. Then suddenly he looked up and turned around and looked at her. And she said he was absolutely horrifying. 
to see. His face had twisted up and, and his expression was so demonic, so horrible that <laughs> that she she could barely stand to look at him. And she said all of a sudden he began to hobble toward her. He just began to like a like a like a great spider. He sort of like a kind of like, you know, move toward her uh, with this jerking. And she said, as much as she knew that this was all a fake, she was saying, you know, Jack, Jack, please stop, stop, please, please. And she said they had a dog and the dog went hysterical. The dog began to bark and cry and carry on and whimper and and, and all this. And finally at this, at the sight of the, I guess he didn't mind too much that Elaine got upset, but <laughs> at the fact that the dog got upset, John just suddenly turned it off, you know, snap over and uh, went, you know, like this for the dog. The dog jumped up in his arms, started licking his face, and and uh, Barrymore said, "Gee, you know, best audience I ever played to." And and uh, you know, he, he was perfectly fine. There was no, no residual effect. Didn't have to sit down and relax. Didn't say, "Oh my God, I'm, I'm emotionally exhausted from that." He could just turn it on like that. And she said it was the most amazing thing you know she had ever seen. So yeah, I, I, and and I guess there's, there's 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 some kind of parable there with him that he was able to go from this this angelic side that he could present as an actor to this demonic side he could present as an actor and just a snap of a finger uh, and uh, and just absolutely terrify uh, his own wife. So, right. uh, so yeah. But he yeah. was like known as, I mean, I think you write in your book, he was the world's greatest living actor at one time and then yes. just d declined. Like he could just, uh, next thing you know, he's like couch surfing and drinking yeah. all the time. So, <laughs> couldn't I mean, keep, yeah, he couldn't keep it going. He had he had grown up with this, with, with this terrible fear uh, his, his, his father had, had ended up in a sanitarium, uh, and that, you know, he, he, he saw his father taken away. He knew his father was locked up in a hospital and that he, uh, John Barrymore was just terrified all of his young life he, as a child, as a young man, anything that that was what was going to happen to him that, you know, that, that he would, he would lose control and he would end up locked away in what they would have called in those days, a manhouse. All right. They were in an asylum and a sanitarium. And so he was able at times throughout his young life, he was able to keep it together. And when he kept it together, he could have spectacular, magnificent results on stage and in the movies and and, and just be this, this spellbinder of an actor yeah, when he couldn't. His eyes yeah. Were compelling, yeah. Yeah. And when he couldn't, you know, but when it would eventually it was like a matter of time before it was going to catch up with him. And, and it finally, by the time he got uh, into his early 50s, he just could not he just couldn't dodge it anymore you know it yeah. just it just it, it grabbed him and got him by the neck yeah but he yeah so he was friends with decker and then you talk about this interesting character i've never heard of sadakichi hartman can you talk about him and <laughs> so it's like yeah. they're, they're growing together like one finds the other and then another right. and then another can you talk about <laughs> that's right yeah yeah sadakichi hartman was this was the, considered himself this great wise man and um of course, he really ran into trouble during World War II because he was half Japanese and half German. So, you know, he was the world's least popular the character Axis, in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. Uh, but even before that, back in the 1920s, I mean, early, all, all the way back in the early 1900s, he, 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 he thought of himself as this incredible artistic genius uh, who, who, you know, who was going to eventually one day turn, touch something that would become just absolutely phenomenally successful. And uh, it talks about in the book, for example, that he in one time in New York, he staged what he called a perfume concert. And he would take uh, the, the audience to another country and, and convey the other country by the use of smell. And there would be people backstage with these big fans 
with like perfume or food or something of that. And they would turn on these fans and shoot the smell out into the audience. And the audience would, would smell it and say, oh, gee, I, I, I feel like I'm in, you know, the Orient. Or I, I feel like I'm in uh, Asia. I feel like I'm in Japan. I feel like I'm in some, you know, very exotic, far off place. Um, and uh, it didn't work. All right. They didn't like it. Then pe- people got up and, and threw things at the stage and walked out and denounced him and said, you know, <laughs> This, this is horrible, you know, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. And uh, but he never gave up. All right. He always thought that he was again, he was this great, great thinker, this great wise man and that he would, um, you know, that, that he would be right. And of course, he he would uh, they, they, they liked him because he was so outlandish. And they also liked him because of the fact that he was extremely direct with them. I mean, you know, he would he would go to John Barrymore, uh, you know, and say, you know, you know, of course, you're a terrible actor, um, <laughs> and 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 Barrymore would roar with laughter. You know, I mean, he, he just thought it was was this was great that uh, you know that, that this guy would talk to him like that, um, and um, uh, you know, the, the, one of the famous stories about uh, about uh, about Satakichi was that he knew another artist, and this other another artist uh, at one point succumbed to, to terrible depression, and he said, um, you know, I'm I'm no good, I'm terrible. Um, I, I, I'm not fit to live. Everything I've done has, has turned to dirt. And um, I, I would, you know, I, I would really like to just get a gun and, and shoot myself and end everything. And Hartman said, you know what? Sadakishi said to him, you know what? I agree with you. I'll get you the gun and uh, you, you go ahead and uh, <laughs> terminate yourself because you're right. You know, you're terrible. Uh, this was, this was, um, this was Satakichi Hartman. So the, the guys all thought he was great. They thought he was like, you know, some kind of, you know, like, you know part human, part praying mantis who said did these horrible, terrible things and tried to pass himself off as a genius. And meanwhile, sat in Decker's a studio at the bar stool and wet his pants every night. Okay. I mean, this was, uh, this is who they were dealing with, with, with him. So. Right. I mean, you said he became a mascot of those guys, but WC yeah. Fields didn't really care for him. Can you talk about how WC Fields fits into this whole. Oh, oh, yeah. you know, it's so interesting about Fields. Um, he, you know, he, he was an epic actor, like many of these comedians are. I mean, he was just, he was, he was first and forefront, a terrific actor. And, and again, he was a man who had a lot of, a lot of heartbreak early in his life. He, he married a, married a young chorus girl when he was a young man. And, and, and apparently she really did him dirt and, and um, made sure that he had nothing, wouldn't have, couldn't have anything to do with his son. And uh, Fields was really, he was heartbroken. I mean, he was, you know, it's hard to imagine him, you know, in the films being heartbroken, but, but that's the way he was. He was a very heartbroken young man. And he came up with this act in which he was this great charlatan and this, this, this guy that took advantage of everybody else. And so the world taking care uh, advantage of him, all right, he took advantage of everybody else. And he was always the winner. And, of course, if you watch his movies, you know, there's always some battle axe wife who, you know, and ends up on the receiving end, you know, in his films. And, and there's always usually some lazy grown son who gets kicked, you know, gets kicked in the pants at the end and deserves it and that sort of thing. And um, so he, he knew you know, he, 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 he was sort of, again, exorcising this, this, this sadness and without trying to get too, you know, too trite with all that. But uh, but he, he, he was. And he, so he came up with this with this persona, this public persona that 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 worked for him. And he understood other actors and, and where they came from, which was one of the reasons he was so good. There's a, a story in the book that was told to me by the um, the actress who she's gone now, God bless her. But she was the, uh, she was the leading lady, Constance Moore in You Can't Cheat an Honest Man. 
And she said that when they made the film, You Can't Cheat an Honest Man at Universal in 1939, that, he, that uh, uh, Fields co-starred with uh, Edgar Bergen. All right. And of course, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, you know, and of course, you know, Bergen had this great setup in which he was a ventriloquist on the radio. And and, uh, you know, <laughs> which do you think of anything more ridiculous? All right. And, and allows his ventriloquist to boot. All right. But he's but, you know, he was a big, big hit. And he's and he's in the movies with W.C. Fields. And of course, on the radio, they have this feud going. And so in the movie, they also have a feud going and they had no script while they're making this film. So they go out every day on the back lot at Universal and they sit down. And they, uh, they, they, they basically are put there to make up the script, what they're going to shoot on a day-to-day basis. And he said that they would, the story that she told was that Edgar Bergen would sit down and he would immediately start to insult W.C. Fields. All right. You know, you know, is that your nose or are you eating a tomato and all this, you know, kind of crazy stuff he would, he would throw at him. And, um, you know, and, and, and it feels, you know, I mean, he's a professional. He's trying to get a script together. And Edgar Bergen is sitting there being a smart ass, calling him names and making fun of him and all this kind of stuff. And, of course, the whole time that, that Bergen's sitting there, he's got the dummy on his lap, right? He's got Charlie McCarthy on his lap. And, you know, all these insults are actually coming out of Charlie McCarthy's mouth while he works the, <laughs> while he works the mouth. And, um, uh, you know, and so finally... Fields looked up one day and she, he, she said, uh, Constance Moore said, Fields looked up and he said, all right, that's it. That's it. I've been a gentleman up till now. It's all over. Get him out of here. Prop man, assistant director, get him out of here. So the, the assistant director went over and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Bergen, will you come with me? And, you know, and, 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 and Fields said, no, no, not, not Bergen. Get that goddamn dummy out of here. All right. And he said, well, you know, Mr. F- <laughs> Prop Man said, yeah, Mr. Fields, that's only the dummy. He said, I don't care. Get that dummy out of here. I hate his guts. Get him out. Well, they took the dummy away. And, of course, after that, as you can figure, Bergen wouldn't say anything, right? He just sat there, and every once in a while he'd say, okay, yeah, you can put this in a script. You can put that in a script. You can put that in a script. Fields understood that Bergen only could talk and only be – only." put on his act and only behave the way he was behaving when he could do it through the dummy, take away the dummy. He just sat there quietly and didn't, didn't say anything. All right. So, so they did, they took, they took the dummy to the prop room and locked him up for a couple of days. Bergen didn't say anything. They didn't get any work done on the script. Finally, Bergen said, okay, all right, here we go. Here's some lines. And, uh, and they said, okay, now that you're, uh, now that you're talking and communicating again, you can have your dummy back and, and, uh, you know, we can go on writing the script of this lousy movie. So, um, <laughs> so he, he, you know, W.C. Fields, he understood what was going on. You know, he understood he, he got the other actors and he, he knew what they, how, you know, how they could perform and what he had to do to get them, set them loose and, and, and all that right. kind of thing. So but he yeah. was experienced by that time, right? I mean, he had been through oh, vaudeville. Yeah. Oh, vaudeville and other movies. And, and, uh, you know, he had, he'd been all over and he, you know, he had, he had all these different routines and, you know, he had a, a routine where he played pool and did all this kind of incredible gymnastics. And he had that, that kind of risque skit where he was a dentist and pulled a woman's tooth and, you know, crawled up in her lap and all that. And, you know, he has a great line to her. You ever had this tooth pulled before? You know, and <laughs> stuff like that. Well, yeah, he had great yeah. lines. You included some of the lines in the thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah, he was. He he had his. He, he really had his act together. He could really, really. Um, he, he was. He was brilliant. He was. He was a terrific yeah. uh, performer. And 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 really, basically, it was interesting. So when he died, he died on Christmas of all times, which he professed to hate. 
But when he died, you know, his friends all came along and said, you know, nobody ever really got this guy, that he was he was really, really a very nice man and a very sensitive man. And but like like the rest of them, he put on an act, uh, you know, to kind of get through life and to get through a career. Yeah. I'm free from all prejudices. I hate everyone equally. <laughs> like you can't <laughs> hold right. those lines. That's right. That's the boy. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, yep. he had a good act too, but he was really was a drinker too, wasn't he? He was. He was. He was. And and uh, yeah, it was. It was interesting. They talked. One uh, another writer talked one point to Gloria Jean, uh, who's in the film with him. I never give a sucker an even break. And they said, "What do you remember the most about W.C. Fields?" And she said, the thing I remember the best about him is his nose. She said, it looked like a big, giant, melting ice cream cone. Uh, you know, it was, it was all different colors. And it was, you know, it was a, spe- it was a spectacle in itself, you know, uh, for the, to, to look at him. But, yeah, he, 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 could, he could put it away, no doubt about it. Right, yeah. And so can you talk also, you talk about, I mean, so he's another one. Who's Ben Hecht? And why is he important to this kind of story? Ben Hecht was, was an extremely uh, brilliant writer. And a prolific writer. I mean, he worked usually worked non-credited on on film scripts. Uh, he would you know, they would need uh, 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 they would say this 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 you know film's a little flat in this point. We need a new scene put in. Call Ben Hecht up and get him to come in here and put something in that'll you know give the give the film some real juice and excitement and everything. And and he would come in and, and write it. But he also had um, he, he had gr- enormous incredible disrespect for the, for the Hollywood film colony. And uh, there, are, there are a couple of poems in the book that he wrote wh- where he goes on and on about, um, you know, about all the uh, horrible, you know, syphilitic things about Hollywood that, uh, that are, uh, you know, just too horrible to be true. And um, <laughs> so he had, he had tremendous disrespect for the film colony or at the same time, you know, made a fortune working there. Um, it, it, one of those ironic things where he just, uh, you know, even though he 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 kind of got up every morning with this self contempt to have to go in and make this, you know, fiendish amount of money working at the studios, he had actually no respect for the studios in in most cases whatsoever, and just felt the whole, you know, the whole thing was a was a was a joke. Uh, but but they uh, but he was he was a tremendous writer. You read particularly some of his early. Uh, books and accounts of the Roaring Twenties when he was a you know a young reporter you know chasing things down and in, in different towns in Chicago and so on and so forth and um, yeah, he was great he was a, you know he he could, he could he could write again great any kind of thing any place any time and and make it stick and can you also talk, I mean can you talk about another interesting character somebody who I've researched is John Carradine so you see these kind of guys who created their offspring or huge or big considerable actors like Barrymore, but John Carradine was another one. Can you talk about him? Yeah. You know, assisting with, with, with Carradine, I, he's a little bit of an anomaly here, a little bit, a little different because I I don't think that uh, Carradine had the same sense of torment that some of these other men had. I think he absolutely loved acting. All right. He didn't have any kind of contempt for it. He adored it. Uh, he he he. As far as I know, didn't have any any problems with his parents uh, when he was growing up, or any kind of any kind of uh, you know sad or miserable childhood. Um, but he grew up in love with with theater, particularly Shakespeare. And he memorized like tons of Shakespeare plays too. Right? Oh yeah, he could do he could do anything, it, it, and it was interesting because it was he was. Um, I remember one time somebody talking to me about the fact that. The, the John Ford film Drums Along the Mohawk that they filmed out in, in, in Utah up in the mountains, 11,000 feet up. 
and uh, they'd have a bonfire every night, and all the actors uh, would uh, would get would get up and do Henry Fonda and Claudia Colbert, and all these people would get up and do skits and perform. And um, uh, you know, the Carradine got up one night and did a, a streamlined Macbeth. You know, he he played all the roles. He played Macbeth. He played Lady Macbeth. He played the three witches. <laughs> you know, he he, he adjusted voice. He knew all the lines. You know, he he had everything. Every memorized by heart. He just absolutely loved it. And in the case of being a Bundy Dry boy, I think he was there because he just absolutely one hundred percent idolized John Barrymore, and he it just was such a joy and a thrill. And it's so exciting for him to, uh, uh, to to be in Barrymore's presence uh, that uh, you know he would uh, you know, he he would show up and he would be there and he would uh, uh, you know be there for in, in honor of Barrymore. Um, it's it's interesting that when Barrymore died in 1942, Carradine, of course, naturally attended the funeral, and they said that you know he was just completely out of it. I mean, he was just so grieving so badly, and they said he was. He was actually sitting in his pew in the church, rocking back and forth and, you know, keening and moaning. And, and uh, you know, you could hear him all over the church, you know, going through this histrionic display of grief that uh, that he put on. So so the, the man was just absolutely hit over heels in love with acting. And he was just head over heels, uh, idolatrous of uh, of John Barrymore. And so his his great uh, he was there not so much because I think he felt bonded by other men who had gone through sad occasions uh or or sad early lives but um uh but simply because he he loved the work he loved he loved acting he loved actors uh yeah, he, he liked loved, the party too so they he loved the party he loved the, he loved the drinks yeah he he could you know he was a he was a remarkable uh, uh you know drinker somebody somebody told me a story not too very long ago i don't think i don't believe it's in the book but they mentioned about the fact that when he did that one performance of Frankenstein uh, back like in 1980 on Broadway, and at one point it was the biggest flop in Broadway history, and he was in the play and he played the, the, the old hermit, and that somebody went into the Lambs Club, the theatrical club, uh, the Lambs Club, on New Year's Eve when the play was in previews, and that uh, they looked in the corner and there was John Carradine sitting there all by himself, you know, nursing a drink. And, uh, um, you know, he went back and said, you know, Mr. Carradine, I'm a great admirer of yours. And Carradine said, oh, sit down. And he sent it, fell sat down. And, and he said, he started, he said, can I buy you another drink, Mr. Carradine? And Carradine, of course, said yes. And he said they went on for about three hours or more with Carradine telling one story after another, you know, of, of his theatrical adventures on the stage, on the screen, everywhere. And he said, the fellow who told me the story said that the, 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 the fellow who told him the story, who, who bought Carradine the drinks, unfortunately, wasn't a drinker. So after like 10 minutes, he just blotted out and <laughs> he didn't, didn't remember anything Carradine told him. He, all he knew was that when the waiter would come and say, do you want another one? He'd say, sure. So they'd get him another one. And he said, and he just sat there. I mean, while Carradine just, just went on, on and on and on for several hours. And he said, finally, about one o'clock in the morning. Uh, some people from the production of Frankenstein came into looking into the uh, Lambs Club looking for Carradine and found him and said, Mr. Carradine, I'm very sorry, but we have to get you back to the hotel. You have a matinee tomorrow. We can't let you out any longer. We don't want you to catch cold. We don't want you to be ill. So, so. And Carradine said, uh, all right. He said, but I, um, I, I can't get up. He finally, he finally admitted. He said, I, I can't get up. 
And they said, well, uh, all right. What they finally did is they, they lifted him in his chair that he was sitting in and they carried him back to the hotel sitting in the chair. You know, I mean, I, I kind of carried him through the streets like, you know, this royal figure uh, and <laughs> took him back. But um, up to that point, I mean, other than the fact that he couldn't stand up, uh, he, apparently he had total recall. He remembered everything. He wow. he would have talked all night long if they had let him. So he just. Yeah, he just loved it. He just absolutely loved what he did. And it's one of my great regrets as a writer that I never got a chance uh, to, to, to meet him. He came to Baltimore, was going to come to Baltimore at one point. Uh, we live up in Pennsylvania, not too far from there. And he was going to come in a dinner theater production. And I thought, my God, I should get him and kidnap him and, you know, move him into the house for a week and you know, tell stories, right? <laughs> yeah, just just sit up all night, listen to him talk. But um, that was when he changed his mind and decided to go to New York and do that production of Frankenstein instead. And it just never happened. But yeah, he he was he's one of my all time favorites, and and uh, and apparently one of yours, huh? Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, the father of four actor kids. He was in yeah. um, the Ten Commandments. He was Aaron, right? So no, you bet. Uh huh. Yeah, he was also he was flamboyant and wore all these funny capes and stuff. Just a real interesting character and friends with another rake, Errol Flynn. So I think there's a point in your book where you say they went like he and John Barrymore and Carradine and Flynn would drink three or four days and just stay yeah. up all night like crazy. Like, Oh man, I feel exhausted. Yeah. You, guys. you can it's not surprise. I'm surprised. A, uh, John Carradine lived that long, honestly, the way they lived. It, it is amazing that he that he did, and it, and I think it was just because he enjoyed it so much. You know, he somehow got the, found the energy and he found the the, the stability and everything. And uh, yeah, he talked he, he, he talks in the book about the fact that you know he had a he he became successful enough to own his own yacht, and once he got a yacht, then he'd invite uh, Barry Moore and Flynn and everybody to join him, and they'd go out and they get a. Um, you know, a whole bunch of ladies of the evening to join them out on the yacht and they'd sail around. And, and, uh, he said, eventually, um, they would, you know, pass out they wake up and <laughs> they'd wake up about a day later, you know, the drifted sea. And he said, you know, there'd be all these prostitutes hanging overboard, throwing up and there they'd be, you know, having themselves a grand time. So, um, it was a, it was a different world back then. It was a different, <laughs> to say yeah. the least. Uh, and, and, you know, these men were all making enough money to finance it and they were all famous enough to, to be able to indulge it. And, and, um, this is, the, this, this is what they did to, uh, you know, this, this, this kind of kept the demons at bay in the case of Flynn and, and uh, Barry Moore. And, and uh, like I say, I'm not sure Carradine had any demons. I think it just was it was just a fun time for him. It's just him. Yeah. But it is interesting, like <laughs> the talent and then the self-destruction, which is the yeah. common theme is like these yeah. are super talented. I think Barry Moore and Carradine super talented. And Flynn was a good looking guy. Like, I think that the alcohol, like his fate, like he had real significant problems from alcohol abuse. Right. He did. It hit him very hard. And um, surprisingly, because you figure, again, that, that with his early life, all the adventure and everything, that he would have been had a little had a little bit more, a little stronger constitution uh, with everything that, that was going on in his life. But once it hit him, it really flattened him. And um, I think he was only 50, I believe, when he passed away. And, um, you know, again, Libby de Havilland said he was such a handsome man, such a talented man, you know, so effective on screen at what he did. But just so tormented, uh, and um, uh, you know, somehow or other, he just he just couldn't get out of get out from under that underneath that shadow. 
Yeah, and there's a lot more in the book to Anthony Quinn. There's much more. I mean, we're at the 40-minute mark. Can you talk about what else people can find when they get the book, Hollywood's Hellfire Club? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of different characters in there who we talk about who, um, who we couldn't talk about today. The, uh, the character actor Alan Mowbray uh, is a lot of fun uh, to read about. Another actor who loved to tell stories and loved to hang out and loved to, you know, was, was, was into that whole kind of uh, crazy world out there. Um, uh, talking about him, you mentioned, you mentioned Anthony Quinn. Anthony Quinn, it's funny. Um, <laughs> they said that, you know, Anthony Quinn was, 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 a, was a very young actor compared to most of the others. He and Carradine were the young you know, the young, youngsters in the group. Uh, and that in the case of Quinn, he was, you know, so, obviously so healthy and so aggressive and, and lasted such a long time. And they said that the joke was that one of the reasons that Quinn was in the Hellfire Club and then with the Bundy Drive Boys is because um, he had the same blood type as John Decker. And, uh, you know, if Decker ever needed an emergency transfusion that, uh, you know, uh, Quinn was there to, uh, you know, to, to give him one. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, then and I, the whole um, the whole the, the whole uh, time in California, the whole time in, in, in Los Angeles is was so incredibly different. The whole lifestyle, the whole, you know, the, what, what people got away with, what, what they were able to achieve. Um, both from an artistic point of view and from uh, from you know a, a playtime uh, point of view, uh, was 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 very very different. It was a very different world, and um, you know it was the era of the great studios and, and era of the of the of, of um, you know people Roaring being able 20s, to yeah, 20s. yeah and you know I mean you could leave like all these actors you know could they could leave in the morning. Uh, at 7.30 and go to a studio and work on a fantastic a picture, which is today is considered a classic and Carradine, a bunch of them, like, like Stagecoach and, and The Grapes of Wrath and pictures like that. You know, you could go there and work on a, on a movie like that during the day and you could be home in time for dinner. You know, I mean, it was it was a, an incredible nine to five existence um, uh, as far, uh, that the uh, studio afforded actors in those days. Right. No, that's incredible. And where's the best place to get Hollywood's Hellfire Club? You know, I would at this point the book's been out for quite a while, so I don't. I I hope it's still in print. Uh, <laughs> but I would. I tell you who you might want to check on with is um, I'm going to give a little plug here. There's a there's a Larry Edmonds Bookshop in in Calif in Los Angeles in Hollywood. Larry Edmonds Bookshop, and they're very good at finding uh, uh, rare books and recently published books and the and the, the latest published books. Um, so um, yeah, Larry E D M U N D S Larry Edmonds Bookshop on Hollywood Boulevard. And, um, you know, I would I'd imagine you can still find it on eBay. I, it, I think it's still on Amazon. It's definitely uh, on Amazon. I checked. Great. It's so it's out. Yeah, it's out there. You can find it. And it's, there's a lot of, um, you know, like I say, a lot of, lot of, lot of laughs, a lot of tears, a lot of, a uh, lot of dimension. I think, uh, again, I, I, Charles Hurd and Bill Nelson and I tried very hard to give it all the, you know, all the depth that it, that it deserved. And so that you, you know, could see that, what was really going on with these with these people at the time, and um, you know what accounted for the genius and what accounted for the heartache and what accounted for the dissipation and and everything else. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's a great book. I really enjoyed reading through it. And where's the best place? To, I mean, you've written. You're almost like a historian of Hollywood or earlier Hollywood. You cover a lot of topics. And people can find out the books at GregoryMank.com, correct? That's right. That's right. It's the best place to go. And there will be information there on how to order and where to find and all that good stuff. And then also contact if people want to reach out to you. They can send you an email through there, right? They sure can. Absolutely. Be very happy to hear from them. 
And I'll put that in the show notes. It's www.gregorymank.com. Again, the title of the book we talked about today is Hollywood's Hellfire Club, The Misadventures of John Barrymore, W.C. Fields, Errol Flynn, and the Bundy Drive Boys. So thank you so much, Greg. Thank you, William. Had a great time. Awesome, boys. Great to be with you. Just stay there for a second. Sure. All right, cool. So that's cool. So that's...